to Elixir Mix. Today on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Josh Adams. Hello. I'm Mark Erickson, and our guest today is Steve Bussey. Hey, y'all. Hey, so, Steve, thank you for coming on today. Could you please just introduce yourself briefly for our audience? Yeah, certainly. So, my name's Steve, uh, as we've said. Uh, I'm actually a software architect at uh, SalesLoft. Uh, we're a company in Atlanta that does basic sales enablement software to help teams grow and become sales organizations. Been here a little bit over four years now and sort of gone. It's actually my first job out of college and actually went, sort of started off as an engineer went into the management a little bit and then finally came back around to the full tech and into the software architecture. And I've been really fortunate actually, since this, this is my first job out of college, we've actually grown from like 10 or 15 employees when I started up to 300. Now the engineering team is like 75 people or so. And we've actually been able to, you know, we started off with Ruby and we still do Ruby. Uh, most of the team does Ruby, but we've actually been able to introduce Elixir really heavily actually over the past year, which has been really awesome for me. That's awesome. What size is the engineering team out of those 300? Yeah, so the product team is about 75 because we actually do it where it's like delivery teams. And there's like nine of those now. Um, And each delivery team will be like seven or eight people, include maybe three or four engineers. So I would assume there's like, there's probably like 30 or maybe like 25 or 30 engineers out of that mix. I'm actually not sure of the full number right now. So Steve, I have a question on how Elixir started becoming introduced to your, your company. Like what was the path that that took? Yeah, so one of my uh, colleagues, Ben Olive, is a uh, you know, really smart guy, and he likes to stay sort of at the front of a lot of these things and just read about them and, and learn about them. And Elixir caught his eye. I'm actually not sure why. I think he was probably watching some talks or you know watching like a conference track and saw it pop up and started reading about it. And he was really taken by the language. Like he, he really liked the elegance of it, and he was coming in really excited about these things. So over time, he was just sort of feeding that into me because he knows sort of the type of person I am and really getting me, I think, on board with that, you know, the language and, and learning it. And it took a little while, but once him and I were sort of on board with the language itself, we actually started introducing it, you know, higher up in the company saying, hey, is this something we'd be willing to do? You know, we were historically all Ruby. Are we willing to introduce our first other language that we maintain our, you know, maintaining apps in this language? Uh, And that's sort of how we got started with it uh, and how it got introduced to us. I've seen that same pattern myself, you know, where you have like a kind of a single advocate for a language or like a a change like that that's in the company. And they're kind of are promoting it and uh, kind of, you know, the the advocate or the evangelist, right, of saying, yeah, really cool. Check this out. So that's interesting to hear that you've had the success in the same kind of pattern. Yeah. And I actually, I call that the champion and, and sort of that's how like the phrase I've coined for that. And one of the things I've actually talked about in the past, been fortunate enough to present on this at a conference is about actually this idea of bringing, bringing it first into a company. And that champion is really important. And basically that's the person, you know, the, the champion, which might be people that are listening to this that are saying, Hey, I want to start doing this. You know, you, you might be the champion that's going to bring it to your organization. And, and it's, it's, it's hard work because you have to be the one that solves a lot of problems and, and ports things from one language to the other and answer people's questions. But it is really rewarding because you sort of get a like, nice front and center view of how the language adoption is working across the company and can sort of help shape how other people are learning it and, and consuming the, you know, their education about it, which you know, if, you're, if you really care a lot about it, then you can help accelerate that throughout the company, which I think is really, is really cool. What do you think the main reason that we keep seeing Ruby is leave the uh, the nice, comfortable pasture of Ruby developers over to this scary new world of Elixir? What what's the draw there? Yeah, for for me, honestly, the biggest draw was probably talks of like these performance promises and these the the promises of how when you use Elixir and really when you use Erlang because that's you know when I was starting off, it's really like, all right, what are the promises of Erlang? And you sort of get those promises with, with Elixir for free, which is nice. The promises of, you know, your app, you have better control if it crashes and, and what's your error handling story. And, but for me, it was, it was really about perf- actually performance because the first project that I shipped Elixir on is, um, is like a product that has like a fairly like ridiculous throughput compared to the rest of our product surface. And so it basically does everything that it can do in memory to serve requests like lightning fast. 
like 0.1 milliseconds of like average response time basically. And so this, as I was looking at it for me, it was like, Oh, this would be really, this would be a great fit for Elixir because I have these particular performance characteristics that while I could, of course I could build a Ruby app that does things in memory and, and all this, but it, it was, it just seemed like the right fit for me. And so that's, that's sort of my story. And I think generally though, when I see people in the community, I do think that people are really taken with the idea of a different paradigm. So having this functional oriented programming, I think especially if you're having JavaScript go more and more to that as well, like not, not what I'm talking about, like I'm talking about like purely JavaScript, but there's still like this, like, I think almost this like functional resurgence with things like React and stuff like that right now. And I think that having that functional paradigm on the back end is a draw for Rubyists who are used to very object oriented and really just having an option of being like, I can use Ruby, great object oriented language. I can use Elixir, great functional oriented language. And I have this choice and they're both great languages. And so I can't really go wrong when I have, you know, one in my left hand, one in my right hand, I can pick the right tool for the task. I think some people are actually using both. I, there's a blog post out there that I know shows you how to do shared sessions across both uh, both frameworks. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm like we at Salesoft are, are using both right now for definitely because I mean, our, our big our app is, you know, four years old, you know, it's not the oldest thing, but it's 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 old enough that you just can't sit down and, and throw out an Elixir version of the app, you know, in a month. You know, that's like a very long project. And so we do run it. And that's actually a great, interesting point that you brought up around, you know, doing something like sharing session. We were, we were talking about adoption of a new language. And I think that microservices make that easier to do because you don't need to write everything all at once. But having the authorization sort of story as a like, known solution in the organization is really, really helpful. So for instance, when we want to throw up on a new Elixir service that serves customer traffic that is authorized by customers... We have a very specific way that we do that with JWT tokens that actually is not how the main app is consumed. That actually is consumed by cookies. And then those are sort of exchanged for JWT tokens when you're talking to these microservices. But the nice thing about that is that if you're writing a Ruby microservice or Elixir microservice or anything, really, you're able to consume this JWT and have your authorization story solved for you. And I think that is a really great sort of gateway for adoption because that's a that's that's the big i think a big blocker getting something new out in the in an organization is just how do we give this to our users securely because that's the most important thing at the end of the day is we're you know we're we're serving our users properly so in your application you actually use rails uh to do the authentication use the jwt from elixir to connect is that what i'm understanding yeah, so so for us, our Rails application, uh, we actually have a we have a, a login service, and we have our main our main app. I'll just call it the app, which is our our bigger Rails application. And they the login server and the Rails application have a way to sort of they 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 do use cookies, but they have a way of uh, it's a little more than just cookies. But I won't go into exactly how it works, just because it's a little com- complex for maybe this topic. But um, so they, they, they communicate with each other. There's some cookies in there that are helping that process along. But whenever we want to talk to a microservice, we actually don't want to use that cookie exchange because then you have sort of this federation problem of like, how do I trust that something is right? What if the user logs out? Does that mean that they, do I need to distributedly log them out? So one thing that we do is we, we, um, we essentially have an endpoint in our application that will give you a signed, uh, like a public-private key-signed uh, JWT token for the application that issued it. And then that sort of, we propagate that throughout the system. And then down on the Elixir side or on our other microservices side, we'll consume that and check, hey, is the issuer what we expect? We have the private or the public key that was given to us sort of in our, in our setup. And then uh, we confirm the issuer, the public key, the expiration time. And then you have the basically, you know, the user that is issuing the request, uh, which has a unique identifier across our whole system. And you know, the team that is issuing the request, which is it, since we're a multi-tenanted SaaS app, you know, having that team is really important. So you're not ever, there's no possibility of ever sharing customer data to another customer, which is like the worst case in a multi-tenant SaaS application. How how's the developers reacted to, to these changes coming in? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Like I said, I was sort of one of the first ones that was sort of doing some of these Elixir things. And they're just like, that's that Steve. That's Steve's a crazy guy. He's yeah. always wanting to do new stuff. It's a little bit of that. But then they're also like, this is, 
this is interesting. Like, like, why are these, why are these two so interested in this? Like, I want to be interested in this and people are interested in it. And then over time, since we do the, the small teams, my team has just real, I mean, I'm super impressed with them. They've learned it, they've adopted it and used it. And like, actually my team, like we have only written Elixir services for about the past over a year now. I don't even know what it's been about a year and a half even. So they've, they've adopted it really well. And so we have that core. And so that's, that's, that's where it started. And, you know, it's just, it's slow. It's just a few people. They're talking about it. They're saying things. You have a Slack channel for it. And then over time you start, we, we do something called a professional development initiative, which is just sort of a way to get people to, whenever they do something like read or are doing a side project to sort of share it out to the rest of the team. So other people can benefit from it. You start seeing those come in of, Hey, I read this post. I read this book. I'm doing this course on Elixir. And it's, it's always an interesting conversation that's happening where someone says, hey, did you know that this is, you know, you, I, I saw you wrote about this. Did you know this is also sort of like that and a corollary to it? And they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And so that's sort of been the organic flow of things over time. And as one, one thing I noticed, we were actually just saying it maybe two weeks ago, is that everyone that's put in the time to sort of go through the courses a little bit and do some Elixir projects, they haven't really said anything bad about it. Like people seem to to understand it and and to and and then th- they are enjoying it. And even whenever they're like other teams now have started to ship Elixir production apps, and they're also enjoying it, and that's going well for them. And so that's like one thing I notice is that people do seem excited about it and do seem to actually care about it. They they want to do things the right way. They want to do things consistently across the team. And I think some of it's the sort of novelty of something being new, but I also think that. They're just, you know, excited to, to be learning and, and, and growing themselves. So what, what was the biggest hurdle, you think, that someone's run into that wanted to get into Elixir and then had some, some issues? Yeah, it's tough. I guess I can give it sort of from my perspective because I'm not entirely sure, like, the best answer for that. But I will say that it seems to be just grasping the concepts of things like what, what's a supervision tree? What's, what's a what is this and that? And the, the sort of OTP concepts, rather than the language, the OTP concepts seem to be the stickiest thing that people will get hung up on. And actually, for me personally, like I'll say this, like I'm doing stuff like right now, like all the time in Elixir, right? It took me four attempts at the awesome, like great elixirlang.org tutorial that they have there on like building a, your first mix uh, OTP app. I actually recommend that to everyone that is getting into it. But I mean, I, I went through that four times before I actually understood. And I really had to ask questions for other people because it was, it was new and difficult for me to understand that because I just had never seen that as a paradigm. But then once I started to understand it, I realized that it's just a few core building blocks that then other things are built on. And so over time, I've just sort of been, you know, you get sort of get down more and more a little deeper into how things are working every time you do something. And then you start realizing like, oh, I, I may, maybe haven't seen this before, but I know that this is built like that. And there's only like two ways that this thing works. So it must, uh, you know, it must be this. And so things start clicking together. But yeah, it takes, it takes some time. Um, awesome. And asking questions is the best thing there, I think. Just being able to have someone to, to bounce questions off of, whether that be your coworkers, if you're fortunate to have other people that are interested in it that are working with you, or even the, uh, the Elixir Slack group, uh, like very big channel can be can be a little hard to get things sometimes, but like people that are so helpful and and really smart and uh, uh, will give you the right way of doing things. Yeah, for me, I think the biggest the biggest thing was sort of I don't know if you if you're familiar with the term the X Y problem, but uh, it comes up a lot in sort of Elm discussions. My biggest problem when I was first getting into Elixir was I would say, Hey, how do I do this thing? And people would say, What What, what are you actually trying to do? And I say, No, this thing. And they say, But why? And, you know, I wouldn't actually be trying to solve the real problem. I'd be trying to do objective things. This is about, you know, my first couple of months at Elixir. And it, you know, it took a while for me to actually, so I, I think that's the same thing you're, you're saying, essentially. Yeah, it sounds like a, maybe like a problem modeling issue, like how to break a problem down into the, the blocks that Elixir wants you to fit it into. Yeah, a little bit. Or, or really just, you know, at that point, it was functional versus object-oriented programming. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I I went through an experience of trying to bring Elixir into a, a previous company that I worked with, 
And the irony, not irony, I guess, isn't the right word, but the frustration that I ran into and some of my peers ran into is that the the lead engineer there at the time had tried Elixir, had a bad experience with it, and had basically blackballed it with the company. So any further attempt to get that technology brought in was kind of met with a vehement hell no. They did end up going to go for a large part of their stuff. That being said, it was probably the right choice for them at the time, although they did lose all of their developers that were interested in Elixir, which was a bit of a a problem. Uh, Have you ever ran into issues like that where there is some pushback from, from leadership saying, no, why would we invest in this technology that might not be as vetted as something that, that is? Like, for example, uh, Golang is supported by Google and all that stuff. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash elixir. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I'm... I'm, I'm very fortunate, and I think it's very intentional on SalesLoft's behalf, but the, the leadership here, at least, is very good at allowing people to sort of self-start on things that they think are going to be beneficial. Now, that doesn't mean they can just have free reign of things, but instead of the, instead of the conversation being, you know, who's the supporters of this language or, or this type of thing, which is important, but it's really about, all right, how will we do observability? How do we know that our Elixir apps are working right? How do we ensure that we're securely authenticating the, the authorization problem I discussed? How do we make sure we're doing that securely? How do we know if it's the right tool for this job and not just everything you know is a nail when you have the hammer? And so those are sort of the questions that were put on us. I think that that type of questioning lends itself really well then to someone saying, all right, I can answer these questions. I can figure out what the best way to do this is. And and give you that answer rather than it being us. It becomes more objective than, than than subjective. Although it definitely there is there is a need for that interest to be there because um, one thing I've heard about at other companies that I'm sure as we get bigger that we're going to have this problem. I think that it it's probably more of a leadership thing than a than a developer thing. But it's like everyone wants to have their own language on their microservice that type of thing. Like let's say that Salesloft was like hired someone who is like really good at Go and they're, that's what they're like, they're really interested in. So they're going to get their, maybe they want to try to get their team on go and they want to get their microservices on it. And one thing that we've done a little bit for that is, is like sort of a technology radar concept, which is where if you want to use this particular tech, you'd be able to look and say, all right, is this, is this in the technology radar? I think there's like four quadrants that it belongs in and, and where does it fit in? And, and also why does it fit in there too? So it's like, if, if you were to just come in and say, Hey, Elixir's in the no, no, uh, no, no discussion even type of technology writer. It's like, all right, how do we get there? Like, why, why are we there? And are we open to having a conversation about it? But I do. It could be difficult. Like, it's hard to give generic advice for people in that situation because it could really depend on the organization that you're in. If your leadership is the type to say, oh yeah, let let us have a discussion about that, and let's try to be objective rather than subjective about it, then that would be a great you know time to try to push for it. But if that's maybe not the story of how the leadership is, is run at that company. It could be a little bit more difficult and maybe even a little bit more political as we, as we go into getting the language adopted. And then in that case, if it were me, I'd probably look for who's the top person that can help me with this and can I get them interested in it and sort of work its way down if that, if that was the way the organization was, was set up. I have a... Uh had the experience of being the champion that you kind of talked about before in bringing Elixir into a company. And that I think that really is the healthy way to do it, of just saying that you have someone who is like, I'm passionate about this. I'm willing to research and, and, and uh, understand and be able to explain and train and, and answer questions. Uh, like I have a friend right now. He is the CTO of a company. And he has really seen the value of Elixir 
but he's coming in as the CTO where he's not so much operational and like actually building code. And he's trying to advocate for Elixir to all these people who are currently Ruby focused. And then it becomes like a top-down push. Mm. And I'm just like, I'm not sure that's the best way to do it. Like, I'm not sure it's going to work well, that you're just going to, you know, upset people. Mm. So it is really, you know, I think that's the case with any change, any big technology change. Because, you know, we developers, we're like picky, right? We pick our languages and we will change companies just so we can work with that language. Yeah. So I, I think it's, but that, that is one of the things I think that, you know, like you pointed out, like the listener can say, yeah, you know, I, I'm passionate about Elixir. This is exciting to me. I can be, I can be that agent of change. I can be that champion for it in my organization. So yeah, I think that's a, an exciting place for someone to be. Oh, definitely. I mean, I mean if, and for people that are listening, if you have that opportunity, I mean, it's uh it's it like you said. It's, it's a little difficult. It's a little a little bit more work than if you're not doing that. But it is worth it, especially um, being able to say that you know that that like not being able to say it, being able to understand how it happened and how to do it at another company, or being able to help people, advise people that are having the same problems. Like that's a that's a big benefit that you can't you can't just get that experience. Like you can't just pick that up. You have to like go through that. And so I think it's a, it's a great you know, a great opportunity if it's something that you're seeing at your company to do. So I'd, I'd also say if you are interested in championing Elixir at your company, but you're a little hesitant, you can feel free to reach out to me at the very least. Glad to help out and have conversations with you and give you any kind of support I can. Where can they reach out to you, Josh? That would be josh at smoothterminal.com. Just email me. So have, Steve, have, uh, during your, your, your learning process with Elixir, I imagine that you have to kind of say, wow, this really makes me appreciate certain aspects of different languages. Or how does that actually change your perception of other languages over, over this time? Yeah, so there was definitely a shift in, in the way I thought about things. I think that the biggest thing that shifted for me is that I used to just take the concept of like, a, a single stack in your request for granted. Like that's like, that's a very technical way to say like what I'm about to sort of describe, but let's say you're in Ruby or in, you know, PHP or these other languages, it's really common to not, let's say multi-thread your request, actually have sort of a request down, you have a stack down and in Elixir, like you can definitely program that way. You could have a single process that goes, goes down throughout the request and then back up. But um, it's also not, it's very, you probably very quickly get out of that if you're doing a, like a production Elixir app, especially, I mean, I think even like, like the database container, sort of a different process. So now you have a different sort of stack when you're issuing queries against that. So it's, that has sort of caused me to at least look at languages a little bit differently and, and look at and say, all right, when I'm, when I'm building something like, am I thinking about this thing as sort of an isolated unit or am I think, thinking about it in the fact that it's going to be passed down the stack? Because you're building something in like Elixir, you almost need to have this thing be standalone and be something that can, that can, that can respond to messages and no, no, no matter what happens. And then if you're in Ruby, maybe you're thinking about it from the perspective of, well, I'm actually just going to call it this way. It's going to go down the stack and come back up. And so maybe I don't need to think about it that way. That's like, that's like a very technical way. It's, it's changed my, my thought on it. I think in a more like, uh, maybe a little bit more philosophical way, I guess I, I start looking at things more as this multi-process model. And I wish that more things were multi-process. So I was actually thinking about, I was building some JavaScript stuff and JavaScript, very asynchronous, like people, you know, doing lots of asynchronous stuff in JavaScript these days. And I was just like, it would be awesome if I could just say, this is a little, this is a mini application in and of itself, which people are doing with things like React and they have ways to emulate that. But to the point that if this crashed, it would not affect the rest of the app and it would be able to bring itself back up and actually truly be isolated. And I find myself like wanting that in other languages now. Like I, when I'm in another language that doesn't have that, I really miss it because now I need to think a lot more about, all right, if this has an error, how's that going to affect this other thing that might be completely unrelated, but just the way that the code is executed, they're going to be sort of tied together in some type of like in the way the errors are handled. And so that's something that has just, I, I, I look forward to that when I go back to Elixir after being in a different language, I can say, oh, I don't, I don't have to worry as much about this. I can sort of think about my problem as a very like focused process and then can build, you know, 10 different things and then like ha have their communication path very explicit and clear. And it, I feel like those are those are the principles that people talk about when they talk about like uh, you know as 
most Rubyists have read like Sandy Metz's stuff and uh, and the sort of like I can't even think what it's called. What uh, what's the the, the like the, the the solid principles? I just feel right. like it's like it's all it's like much easier to build that in Elixir for me. And and that that it might just I don't know maybe it's just I look at it's because I come in with a fresh start, so I'm doing things the way I want to do it rather than these preconceived notions of how I program and say Ruby. You know, with multiple years of good and bad habits in there. So I don't know. That's uh, it, it's definitely changed my perspective, it might be, it's a little rambly, a little hard to sort of put it together, but I would definitely say that there was a, a shift at, and it, it was almost like, it's like, it just like clicked one day. And it was almost like, like one day I felt this way. And the next day I felt this other way. It wasn't, it was almost like not gradual. It was like, I, once I understood it, it, it clicked. And then it like, it's like shifted my perspective from there, from there, basically. I actually it's know like, what you're talking about, but I don't have a name for it. <laughs> it's it's went, called Taco Bell. Thing. <laughs> Taco Bell. Once you have Taco Bell, it's like, come on, you know. There's, there's no, there's no going back. <laughs> I don't know why I chose Taco Bell, but yeah. You know. <laughs> so, what is Elixir missing? The language, or the community, or I guess the whole package, or <laughs> yes, um, yeah. So, I think I'll start with one thing. It's not missing, and then because then I can answer that really quickly. And as I buy myself some time to think about other things, I think one thing it's it's definitely not missing is a really smart community that wants to help help other people adopt it. And so that is, that's like, to me, that's like almost like the number one qualification for it is that there's other people that are willing to help. Like Josh, Josh is like, Hey, you can email me and I'll help you out. You can probably don't, I mean, I, I you can probably like Slack me or something on the, on the Elixir Slack to be the like best way for me. But uh, you know, I can go ahead and help you out too. Like there's a community of people that like all think that way and all feel that way. So that's awesome. Things that is missing. I think that I'm, t- I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. Cause it's, there's a lot of awesome material out there, but I also feel like there's some material that's missing almost like the war stories that people have of like when things went wrong. I think I'd love to see more like war stories of like, what do you do when this goes wrong and, and how do you handle it? So like more war stories in the community, more like deeper understanding in that way of when things go wrong. I think the number one thing that I miss personally is just better tooling for the things that I take for granted in Ruby. Like, uh, for instance, like your application performance monitoring. Like, I, I use New Relic at work. And I actually, I love New Relic for, for Ruby. And I'm very disappointed in how they've handled like Elixir. And I understand it from a business perspective. Like, it makes sense to me. But I really wish that those types of tools were more prevalent in the community. I was actually talking to another APM tool, AppSignal, who I met at RailsConf and sort of about Elixir. And they're, they're, they're doing a little bit more there about how they sort of have some tooling. But it's also, it's Elixir tooling fit into a Ruby UI. And that's sort of across the board in all the different systems right now. And I think that the multi-process setup of Elixir makes it really hard to put together like a solid APM sort of visualization of how your app is running. I I do think it's a really hard problem. I think it's a harder problem than it is in Ruby. And that's probably the number one thing that I'm missing. And it's, um, it can be rough whenever you're, whenever you have to then go and do these things yourself somehow, like whether that be manually or whether you just have to make a concession and say, I guess I don't have this thing that I want and I'll just have yeah. to live without it. Have you used Scout any for your, or have you looked at Scout for your APM? They have you some stuff specifically around at least channels. Like yeah. So anyway, gotcha. they're, they're another APM that's kind of Elixir friendly. I, I ended up using, um, I ended up like modifying one of, the, one of the new Relic Elixir ones and actually was able to put monitoring of like custom transactions. So I, I have one for my channel, all my channel functions, which is nice. And so there, there are ways to do it. It's just, the, the, I don't know, it's like, there's something missing there. You, you want some more love from vendors. That's what you want. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit more love from vendors would be great. Yeah, I actually can speak. So on the Google side, you know, Google has released a ton of uh, Elixir APIs for their services, but all of them are just sort of, you know, machine translated just about. And there are a few little, little quirks with, with all of them. I, I, I agree with you. I wish that some of those were a little more, got a little more love, like their uh, siblings. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes, but I'm, it, all, I'm it also super happy when I see anybody doing anything for Elixir. Right. So like, I don't, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to throw shade. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely not. Like people are, I found that people are warming up to it. I think as adoption increases, I, I personally think that there will be within the next year, I think adoption is going to go up a good bit. And I think that when it, 
does, that's when the the vendors will start looking at, you know, custom tooling or like different UIs for it. I think it just maybe just doesn't make good business sense for them, which is, which yeah, is, I mean, you gotta have customers to build yeah. a thing for customers. Yeah. Exactly. I will, I will buy it if they have a really good one though. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was no, there was no Ruby application performance monitoring for the first like five years I was doing production Ruby apps. So. Yeah. And now it's great. <laughs> So Steve, earlier you were also mentioning like when you're bringing Elixir into your organization and when that was happening and that um, administrative people are, and management are asking that kind of question of, like, well, how do you monitor it? How do you debug production issues? And that kind of continues on with this discussion of APM. So you mentioned a little bit about how you have some custom New Relic stuff, but you know, how, if you could speak a little bit to how are you monitoring your production Elixir deployments or how are you debugging production issues? If you would talk a bit yeah. about that. Yeah, definitely. So the biggest way I was actually, and I was talking to this about with the CTO yesterday, cause he was sort of talking about, you know, the observability story and can we have a, you know, maybe more explicit one or a better one. And I was like, Oh, we actually have a great observability story. It's just sort of scattered right now a little bit. So the first thing like I mentioned, we are using New Relic. And so I have some, some basically uh, things that I know are like, I would call a transaction in my application, which would be things like I'm going to in, maybe pop something off a queue and process it. All right, let's wrap that up in a transaction. It's not a web request. It's not a background job. It's something different, but it, it's a transaction. So let's do that for our web requests, our queue processing. By queue, I just mean I, I use like GenStage to make sure I like throttle things so I don't overwhelm the downstream servers. So that's what I mean by queue. Um, in that case, like channels, how are people hitting the, the different channels? And so that's that's the New Relic story. Uh, it gives you some good stuff around what's the database queries, what's the general time. That's about all it gives you. Uh, and, and per transaction breakdown. The, the other thing that I use a lot, which is probably what I go to most often, is some Datadog, some StatsD dashboards that I have set up. And I'd even, I could I would probably even share one of those if we want to today on like a screen share just to show people like what I have in that situation. But basically different stats that are part of the VM, like the underlying VM. I'm just going to pull it up in the background so I can talk a little bit more knowledgeably about it. But basically these different stats are sort of the, the key for me to understand what is the health of my system right now. And I can actually... I'll actually see things happening and say, oh, hey, yeah, the request per second must be going up really high, especially on the one that's like a really high throughput server. And I, I'll see that in those charts immediately. Uh, and then I can go investigate in something like New Relic. And so I, I get uh, capture things like the, uh, the size of the run queue, which is sort of how much work is outstanding in the system. I'll capture all the different memory profiles, such as your ETS memory, your total memory, your process memory the number of processes, maybe even the number of connected web sockets. And so these are different things that I have just constant graphs running for and per application. And this is probably the thing that I go to most because I can just look at that at a glance and know if the system is, is healthy or not. So that, that's, that in New Relic is sort of the everything is fine story. Then you have the, all right, something's going wrong. Let's dig into it. One of the things actually that was, I've been running into recently, just as an example of something that could go wrong that you might see in production, that... I actually didn't expect to happen was I have, I've, we have like a, maybe let's say a couple of 10,000 like web sockets connected to a few servers and maybe like 10 servers. So like over 10,000, less than 50,000 web sockets. And every time I'd reboot the server, one node would run really hot, like shut down type of hot with hundreds of thousands of messages in the channel presence process. And so basically then, all right, how do we get to that point? So what I do is, so now my servers are, are deployed with Kubernetes, which means I can, and, and they're deployed using um, something called distillery, which actually gives you a really help, nifty command called remote console. And what it'll do is actually put you in a console. It, it's, it's, like a, it, it's like a proxy, but it, it feels like you're running on a real server. It's a superpower. It's, a, it's crazy. It's nuts. And it's actually really neat because you're actually not connected to the console. You're connected to another Elixir node that's then like privately networked with the other console, which I think that's the magic for me. I'm like, that's crazy. That's awesome. And what I do there is I use a tool called Observer CLI because I don't have like window forwarding or anything set up to use Observer. So Observer CLI gives me this really cool um, sort of textual ticking dashboard. Every one and a half seconds, it sort of refreshes itself. And it shows me for this node, What's all the memory? What's all the, the number of reductions, which are like your CPU? What are the top 10 processes I can sort, or not top 10, the, just the top processes uh, sorted by, let's say, memory or the number of reductions or the size of the message queue? 
And that's when I go in there and I say, all right, let me log into this box that has, uh, you know, 500 megabytes more memory consumed than the other boxes. Now they're only consuming 500 megabytes. So that's twice the amount of memory that it would be. And so I look at that box and I say, wow, you know, this one process has 400,000 things in the message queue that can't be good. And so that's, that's really what I use to, uh, to sort of diagnose a running node that's going poorly in production. One challenge I have with that is actually sometimes I'll find myself logging into like 10 nodes in a row saying, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Like nine of them will be fine. And then it's the last one I try. And it's like, oh yeah, this one's a problem. And so that's actually something that I'm looking at right now on how to solve that particular problem. And so basically like the solution I'm taking there is basically, uh, it's all Elixir, which is nice. So it's a sort of a little nice little testing app, but a WebSocket that's connected from a central server to the application, all the different application nodes. And then the, the, Java, the, the, the client that you'd be sitting at your computer with would send basically a command across the wire and then the servers would execute the command and send the results back. So one of the commands that I have, for example, is process list. So it'll give me the top 10 processes sorted by memory for every server in my cluster and it'll put that in a dashboard for me to look at and I can hit that button as much as I want and it'll keep running that command on the server. And so that's something I'm going to start using to basically say, all right, one of my 25 servers is running hot. They all look like they're fine. Let me run this command and see which one has the is taking the most reductions over a five second period. Yeah, and that ops tooling stuff that Elixir gives you, people don't talk about it enough. I, I think it gets a lot of talk, but I still don't think it gets enough discussion because yeah, like what, like you mentioned, like you can go in a web browser in your GKE Kubernetes CLI and and look in your web browser, just look and see, figure out what's going on with your with your machine. By remote again, that feels extremely cool. Yeah, it, um, it, it's compared to like, don't have in Ruby. Yeah, yeah. If you've if you've done it, so I, in Ruby, I did it with sort of JRuby with the JVM, and uh, I forget uh, there's one of like two debugging tools that are pretty good for the JVM. But it feels like Erlang is pretty close on that front. Maybe not entirely up to par with Java, but it's way further along than you know your typical non. Java.NET languages in terms of debugging. And I feel like it doesn't get enough uh, attention because maybe because there's not as much to debug. I don't know. Yeah, that could be. I mean, and the things I debug are, I have debugged fewer problems, but they're also, they've been trickier to, to figure out. The, the one yeah, thing, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just saying, yes, I, I, I have the same problem. Yeah. The, the one tool that, because you were talking a little bit about like different tools that people use. So Recon is an actual Erlang library that is really great for, safely in production doing a lot of these just sort of queries of the system of like the health of the system, the health of your processes. Um, and that's actually one of the tools that will have commands such as run a polar for five seconds and then give me the top 100 processes sorted by the amount of memory consumed in that five second window, which is like a really awesome thing to be able to do. So recon is the name of that Erlang library. And it's not that difficult to use. Um, and there's some good documentation on it because it's been around for a while. It's not Elixir. It is Erlang, which means it's been there for a few years longer. And then what's the, do y'all know the, the name of the book? It's a web book. It's not the Learn You Erlang for Good or whatever that one is. It's, it's one about basically about operations in. You're Erlang. talking about also, so those are all from Fred Hebert, Fred uh, Hebert, third on GitHub. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm trying to find the book right now. I know the one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it either. I believe you're talking about Erlang in Anger. Yes. Erlang in yes. Anger, yes. Yes, that is, it's only a hundred pages, something like that. Uh, the, and the first half of it goes by really quick because it's sort of like conceptual things about how Erlang runs. The last half of that book, of that ebook, it's free, is amazing for like, if you have a problem in production, you're like, why is my server taking up all this memory? It's like, you go to the part that says why your server takes up all this memory and you do the things that it says to do and then you have your answer. It's a really good resource to, to just know, um, mainly about, knowing where to look, right? It's not about having it memorized or anything like that. It's about knowing, oh, hey, I saw the answer to this question in this book. It was towards the end in, the, in this chapter. Uh, and I know how to find that book online. And I know how to reference that chapter and I can get my problem solved from that. So I do recommend at least skimming the, the table of contents so you know what types of things it, it answers. But that's an amazing book. That I, That's probably one of the, the favorite things I've read on Erlang operations in the past six months. It's a great resource. And that was, I think that was recommended. Yeah, that was recommended in the Slack group. I think I went in one time with, uh, and it's uh, one, one of the blog posts I wrote, I actually wrote about it afterwards. It's um, 
It's uh, called Elixir Memory, not quite free. And the, the general thing was it was this service that has the couple thousand WebSockets connected to it. When we had 200 WebSockets connected to it, each node would take up 500 megabytes of memory, which is ridiculous. Uh, it sounds like, like I, coming from the Ruby, I'm like, 500 megabytes, that's not that much. But that's a lot for the application that, uh, and every time we, let's say we doubled it, it would then go up to a gig. So that's, you know, a ton of memory just for WebSocket connections. And they were like, hey, you should read this book. And so you can figure out where your problem lies. And basically, uh, you know, going through that process and figuring out that the garbage collection in Erlang, uh, in, in Beam, so I, I knew already that it was per process, but it actually doesn't trigger in like the WebSocket case is actually almost an edge case for the garbage collector, which is a long lived process that doesn't really do that much in the grand scheme of things. It just, you know, responds to messages sporadically. It's all, it's actually can be unpredictable depending on how your users are sending messages to it. And so that's actually an edge case in the garbage collector. And so there's certain things you can do, like changing the, how often the system garbage collects, or you can manually garbage collect your process, your, your socket process. And we were able to get it down from uh, like four megabytes per WebSocket down to like 20 kilobytes or something like that, which is, uh, you know, you can get obviously many multiple times more WebSockets in fewer resources. So that was a really useful one. And then actually cool things on that one was uh, just in terms of debugging and learning more is that, you know, I, I thought a lot about the channel that I was working in, but I didn't actually think about how the data was being sent over the wire which is another process. It's actually a cowboy WebSocket process. And that has to do a lot of things in memory, like doing the like binary serialization of your data across and from the socket. And that takes up memory. And that it has the same exact garbage collection issues that your process has. And so you have to handle garbage collection in that process also. So it was a very interesting like dive through of ways that... Uh, that WebSockets could maybe be a little bit confusing as you first start to use it. So the, the promise, I guess, that I saw of WebSockets is I can run thousands of these per nodes without issues, you know, depending on what they're doing. And then I was finding out that I can only run 100 per node, and then, then I start running into issues. And so the, the promise of them wasn't being hit. And it was just some, some tuning, some tweaking. And now it's awesome. Uh, you know, we have... Uh, I think, you know, with the, with the thousands of WebSockets we have connected, I think the, the average amount of memory on our nodes, I'm actually like just checking in Datadog right now. Right now, the average memory is 360 megabytes. And we have thousands of WebSockets connected per node, and there's uh, seven of them there. So, you know, very low memory overhead once everything was tweaked and tuned and made right. That was a lot to, a lot to dig through all at once. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that's the part I'm most passionate about right now because I've been trying to get this service deployed to our customers for too long, and so I've been like running into these little problems and just sort of having to go deep on them. Solve that that sort of champion mindset. You got to solve the problem. You can't just throw it out and and move on. You got to solve it, and then you do solve it, and it feels really good, and you feel really passionate about it. <laughs> you bring a lot of experience that I that I think a lot of developers are going to that are go, are going to go through as as Elixir champions for their company. So I really appreciate you sharing, sharing your story with, with us and, and kind of, kind of giving us a, a base path for people to follow. Yeah, it's definitely happy to. And that's actually, um, I, 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 I'd love to see it more and more in the community. I love reading what people are posting about, um, you know, on the, I follow the Reddit Elixir and the, and the Slack group. And so there's so, so many interesting topics that people can really dive into and explore and, the thing I'm most interested in is just what what problems do people run into? Like, tell me about your problem and tell you how t t tell me how you solved it because I might run into that same problem. I might even have the problem and not know what the solution is, and so um, or I might have seen the problem and said, "Oh, Elixir's not good. It has this problem." And then so like, "Oh yeah, there's a solution. I just add this setting and everything works like I wanted it to." So encourage people to to write about write about what you're experiencing in it because I think that's that's going to be the, the the future path forward for the community. Awesome. Well, thank you, man, for coming on. I appreciate that. And is there anything else you wanted to mention or, or a topic that you think we should mention to the, to everyone? I think we covered a lot of the stuff I was really interested in, which is around like the operations perspective. I guess one thing that could be good to, to cover is people um, are adopting Elixir, maybe the testing side of things a little bit. I think that's actually one thing that Elixir has inherited from the Ruby community because they are very closely tied together. 
is this testing story. But it's also a little trickier because you know your tests are also running in this multi-process environment. So I know that I, th- I think that's one thing that could be interesting to cover. I guess the, the one thing I would say on that, just like I guess as a quick topic, would be that my my favorite tool that I found for it is something called Mockery. I don't like using mocks. Like I try to use them as little as possible. But sometimes like it's really, really, really easier to test something hard when I can just mock it out and do unit testing more. I I'm actually a big fan of BDD. I'm a fan of testing the whole system, even if it's slower. I'm a fan of knowing that this works from end to end, top to bottom, and there's no, no chance that my unit tests were incorrect you know, in the communication path. But I do find it can be really difficult in Elixir, especially if you're doing things like you know, having unique processes, and now I have two tests that run at the same time and hit the same unique process, and what happens in that situation? So it's just like one thing I guess I would say to people as they, as they get into Elixir is definitely keep writing, keep writing tests and you know, trust the system once you have those tests and that there's definitely tools out there and some good resources on how to test in Elixir. And it, it's, not, it's not the easiest thing to get into at the beginning, but once you do, it's really powerful. And I, I feel like I trust my, my systems really well right now, mainly because of the, the, the testing story. I was telling my, my uh, VP um, the other day about how we use uh, some error monitoring tools for tracking errors. And we, we have had errors. Usually they're around things like the communication of processes blows up or something. And we get some errors. We've actually had zero logic errors, which would be like we expected something and it came back nil and we tried to do something on the nil, you know, something like that. Like we haven't had issues like that. And part of it is like just like the tests are really nice. One thing one of my colleagues, Grant, was telling me yesterday actually is that he really appreciates how tests in Elixir because they're just processes. A test is a process. You can run multiple tests simultaneously. You get this parallel test runner for free, which I think is just is really awesome. So that's 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 one thing I'd say there. Check out Mockery uh, as, a, as a really cool tool and, and don't give up on testing if it seems a little bit hard. Write a sloppy test if it means that's tested well uh, and you'll figure out how to write it, how to write it better later. So Yes, the testing story in Elixir is really good and you can have synchronous tests, you know, so the you don't have to worry about the concurrency part. You can have the uh, asynchronous tests where it's like it's in parallel. But yeah, so it's like I think there is a lot of power there in in all the testing story around Elixir. So yeah, yeah, I agree. It's out of the box. It's 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 nice. Well, thank you. We don't want to keep you too long. We've have yeah. we've kind of filled our time slot, but I did want to. Uh, see if there's any picks. Um, Josh, did you have a pick that you'd want to share first? I'd like to pick alchemist.el, the Elixir mode for Emacs, essentially. Aldrich is maintaining it right now, and he is presently doing a push to get a language server going out of it. So um, I'd love to just kind of point people to that and see if they wanted to help him get it over the hump because it's a very valuable tool for editor tooling. Cool. So that is my pick. That's good. Alchemist, yes. Um, I know that the Alchemist Foundation is also used in other tools like for getting code completion and things like that in Atom. Yeah, and once there's actually a proper language server built out of it, it'll be much easier. Yes. That'd be amazing. So, yes, it's a great thing that it, if anyone can help on that and is skilled in that, that'd be awesome. So my pick is last week I didn't make the podcast because my primary hard drive failed on my machine, which prompted me to say, you know, I didn't lose any data, right? So that was all good. Uh, but it's like, I've, I've been wanting this, a good backup story for my home stuff. And, and uh, you know, where I have offsite and it's versioned and I can pull things back and it syncs across multiple machi- machines and I can access it on my phone if I want. And, and so what I've been using and having fun with is a project called C-File and it's cfile.com. They have an open source and like a free community version that's open source and a pro version. And I'm using the pro version because you can do pro if it's three people or less. And so like for me and my wife for home use, it works great. And so I've been having fun deploying that and getting that all working so I can use my mobile phone to access files whenever I want, wherever I am, and it'll automatically upload my photos and it's all encrypted. I control the keys and it's backed up to S3. So that's what I'm having fun with. Uh, fun one there out of pain, you know, come, <laughs> learning from pain. Yes. And Steve, did you have anything you'd like to share? Yeah, I would say one talk that I watched, it was probably two years ago now, maybe even two and a half years ago, that has just really stuck with me. Some people, you know, it's a little controversial sometimes, um, but 
The, the talk is called Architecture of the Lost Years. And the reason I, I bring this up as a pick, even though it's a little, little old one, is that this influenced more than anything else how I actually write APIs right now. Um, I don't write controllers anymore. I, even in, I use Phoenix. I don't write controllers. I don't write actions. I write my sort of own thing that maybe one day will be public. But uh, it's, it's basically the idea of how do you want to write the application? Like Rather than having the framework dictate to you, write it the way you want it. And then one thing that I do is I like to still utilize the framework. So like I said, I use Phoenix. Um, I don't use it necessarily the way that they use it out of the box, but I get all the benefits of Phoenix. I get you know these, these awesome things that it provides, but I'm able to also build my app the way I want and the way that you know the, the company as a whole wants to build it. And so um, that's a really awesome talk. Great. And Steve, if people would like to find and kind of follow you on your championing uh, journey and as you're working with Elixir, if they want to follow along with you and kind of see what you're doing, where would, where would they go? Yeah, so I think that the place that I'd post most, most for Elixir-specific things would be uh, stephenbusty.com, my website. It's just basically blog posts. Um, I'd done one... I was, trying to, I was trying to win the PDIs at work. I did win them. But basically, my, my goal was to blog every day in February. I didn't make it the whole way through for some personal reasons. It was very difficult to blog for 28 days every day straight on technical topics. But there's uh, enough stuff in there, I think, to get people really going and, and, and digging into Elixir a little bit. And so that's where you would find most of my content. I don't really, I'm on Twitter, but I really am just more of a consumer on there rather than like a, uh, someone that's active. Um, although you can always tweet at me, uh, you know, at Yoda four O's and four A's and then on GitHub as well, SB eight, two, four, four. I just kept my college name from, uh, from what they assigned me in college. That's the story of that one. No, no magic in the letters, but that's where I post different projects I'm working on. I just sort of, when I make something, I just put it up in my repositories and leave it there forever. So like the APM I'm working on is up there. Some test beds of different Elixir things I have are up there just sort of maybe not being super useful, but, uh, you know, there for the code. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you for coming on and, uh, thank you everyone and look forward to talking to you guys all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.